Okay, our missionary of the week this week is uh, Juanita Fike, and uh, she labors uh, for the Lord on behalf of uh, this church and other churches that uh, support her in Flagstaff, Arizona, working with United Indian Mission. And the primary goal of that <clears throat> mission is to reach out to the native peoples of America. And it's a privilege for us to be able to support her. She's going to be sharing after the second service in the modular building. Uh, and you guys are welcome to stick around for that. There'll be refreshments and um, you'll be hearing her heart and what God has been doing in her life and ministry. But we've asked her if she could come for a couple minutes and share with us. You were planning on that, right? Okay. Let's all welcome our sister, Juanita. It's good to be back with you. I appreciate so much your support through prayer and through finances. That means a lot to me, and it's been fun this week to have opportunity to share with various segments of the church body, the Awana, the ladies, and um, after a while I'll be speaking to the K-4 through 12th grade. That's a challenge. I really would love to share with you what's happening in my own ministries and in the ministries with UIM. There is so much to share. Um, Learned just since I have been here that three of our aviation mission couples have had to leave their homes in Durango City in the state of Durango, Mexico, because of the violence there. Just a month ago, one of our planes was confiscated and a pilot was put into jail down in Mexico. A lot of things are happening in Mexico. And we still don't have our plane back. We do have the missionary back. But there are so many happenings, and I would love to share that with you over the lunch hour. I'm going to be showing some a PowerPoint of my own missionary work and then a DVD of the aviation missionary work. Down in Mexico, we couldn't get along without the airplanes. And because of recent happenings, a lot of it due to, we think maybe all of it, due to the drug trafficking, some of our aviation our flights have had to be canceled. So I'd like to share all of that with you during the noon hour, if you would come. There's a table outside that has a lot of material on it. It's all free. I have the copy of the 50-year history of UIM with a lot of pictures in it. I unfortunately have only one copy of that with me, but there's a paper there for you to sign up if you would like to have a free copy of it. There are a number of copies of the missionary biography that I have written and some other little booklets, plus some magazines. So feel free to take it. I would just as soon go back with an empty briefcase. So take as much of it as you can. And thanks again for your prayer and financial support. I really, really appreciate it. Hi, my name is Paul Kumamoto. I'm the chairman of the Board of Elders here. Uh, my friends call me Kumi. Mike, you can call me Paul. Uh, um, but I'm, uh, we've rearranged the introduction of new members um, because I teach Sunday school in the second half, and so we have to do it at this time. So we're going to introduce our new members at this time. I'd like to call up Cheryl Writing. And Lorna Sanchez. They're supposed to be here in the first 
Here we go. The ones, uh, also the new members of the second service uh, will be Jennifer Jung, Justin Chow, Becky and Amanda Frank, Joe and Patty Torres, Kayla Hernandez, Meg Gall, Irene Ching, Meredith Schroeder, Jessica Miller, and Maggie Sellers. Uh, none, is, are any of those here at this time? Okay, because they said they'll be here second service. Um, but why do we believe in uh, church membership here at Cornerstone? Uh, we believe it's biblical to place yourself under the authority of a group of elders, uh, whether it's us or whether it's another group somewhere else. Um, but we feel that you need to place yourself under a group of elders uh, who will give an account for your souls to the master shepherd. Also, uh, to be able to fully use your gifts here at Cornerstone, uh, you need to be a member um, of our church. Uh, it also gives you accountability, knowing that if you allow yourself to live in unrepentant sin, uh, that it will be brought before the church. And also allows others to know of the commitment level that you have towards our local fellowship here. That's why uh, we at Cornerstone believe in uh, church membership. But at this time, uh, to the new members... If you guys would listen to this, uh, these statements, and if you'll do these things, say I will at the end. Will you seek to experience the gospel in all of its fullness through the disciplines of Bible study, prayer, fellowship, humility, and giving? And will you seek to worship the Lord in community with others in this body with a heart made clean by the blood of Jesus? And will you make it your ambition to be an edifier of the body? And will you allow your brothers and sisters in this local church to minister edification to you? And will you take seriously your relationships with others in the body, doing everything in your power to preserve the unity of the body in love? And will you make it your ambition to share the gospel of Christ with the lost, so that they also might experience the blessings of salvation too? And will you consistently contribute as a good steward of God's blessings, such time, talent, and money, in the measure that God prospers you, so that our local and worldwide ministry of spreading the gospel may continue? If you will do these things, will you say, I will? And to the congregation, will you, with the aid of the Holy Spirit, seek to love, encourage, teach, admonish, comfort, and exhort all of our new members here with a genuine desire to see them grow in the knowledge of Christ and his word? If you will do these things on their behalf, will you say, I will? All right, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks uh, for today. We thank you for um, just a great day to come and worship you. And we thank you for our new members. We just thank you for their commitment level to you, first of all, and also their commitment to our local fellowship here, willing to use their gifts and time and effort to further the gospel here at Cornerstone. We just ask your blessing on them, blessing on our service. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, thank you, guys. Well, let me have you guys uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1 for our time of study in the Word this morning. For those of you that are visiting with us, we're doing a verse-by-verse study to the book of 1 Timothy. And as we continue in our study of this book, we come uh, this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. And my goal uh, this morning is to look at verses 8 
through 10. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll be looking at verse uh, 11. But our goal in going through uh, God's word is to hear from him. It is a relational thing that we do. We love God and hence we cherish every word that falls from his lips as he speaks uh, to us. And in an act of love, we listen to him. And if he happens to say something that we don't like or that is different from what we believe or have been practicing as individuals or as a church, then it is our responsibility to change ourselves for to allow God to change us rather than us seeking to change him or his word. And as we continue in our study of First Timothy, uh, we come this morning to verse eight. And if you want to give a title to what we're going to be talking about this morning, it would be things we should know about the law, things that we should know about the law. And when I say the law, the Old Testament uh, law, if you want to give a title to verses eight through eleven, it would be things that we should know about the law and the gospel. And next week we'll be focusing on uh, the gospel as we learn about it in verse 11. But today our focus is going to be uh, on uh, the law. Uh, real quick, guys, as we start, uh, let's do a word association game, okay? Let me wake you up. I'll state a word and you tell me the opposite. All right. Um, tall. Uh, boy. Um, happy, big, black, Mike Berry, <laughs> Katie. <laughs> okay. I threw that in on purpose just to show that sometimes finding an opposite is not uh, always an easy task. I asked my two youngest children that question separately. And for the opposite of Mike Berry, they both said Milton Vincent. So I'm not sure what that means, but I got I got two more here. Old Testament. Very good. And lastly, law. Grace. Okay. very good. Um, Another answer that some might give to the opposite of law is gospel. Uh, But grace or gospel uh, would work as the opposite of law. And the truth is that because grace and the gospel uh, are often viewed as the opposite of the Old Testament law, it creates a challenge for us as believers and kind of knowing how to juggle those two uh, to understand the relationship of the law to God's grace, of God's law to the gospel of God, and not only understanding the relationship between uh, the two, but then what our relationship as believers should be to both the law and the gospel. And this is actually a problem that has plagued Christians down through the centuries up through to today. Uh, Even the book of Galatians, as we Uh, studied it um, within the last year. It's a letter that Paul writes to believers who were being lured away from Christ and from the true gospel to a different gospel, which was the law. 
And uh, their error would have been a fatal one if they would have continued in that path. And Paul says to them that if you go that way, the full distance uh, to the law and you begin to put yourself under even certain aspects of the law, then you are obligated to keep the entire law of God and have to obey and live under the entire uh, system. The book of Hebrews is a letter that is written to Jewish believers who had been saved out of Judaism into belief in Jesus Christ and a relationship with him. However, they were being drawn back to the Old Testament law and the writer of Hebrews needs to intervene. There's even elements of this kind of dynamic going on in the book of Colossians as well. So this was happening in the first century when the gospel and all of its raw power was being unleashed upon the early church. There was still this struggle uh, in the lives of genuinely Christian people over what do we do with uh, the law. And the fact is that in the Ephesian church, Paul is writing Timothy, who's overseeing the Ephesian congregations, and they're having a problem with with this as well as we're going to review in just uh, a moment. And so today and next Sunday, we're going to be uh, learning some things about the law and about the gospel, uh, some things that we absolutely need to understand and master if we're going to experience the spiritual health that God wants us uh, to experience. But let me begin by giving you guys uh, some definitions. When we speak of law, we're not just talking about the Ten Commandments or, you know, individual laws that uh, that are among the Ten Commandments or throughout the Old Testament. The word law basically speaks of a system of righteousness based on one's obedience to the commandments that we find in the Old Testament. That's the law. It's a system. Um, it's not just the commandments on paper or engraved in stone. It is a system of righteousness, of obtaining and preserving one's own righteousness based on his level of obedience to the commandments that are found in the Old Testament. The gospel could be defined in a ton of different ways. This definition is woefully inadequate. Um, but it'll work by way of contrast to the law. The gospel is a system of righteousness based upon the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Uh, it is um, it is um, kind of a way of life uh, that involves a perfect spotless righteousness that is found in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. And so rather than having to obey the requirements of the Old Testament law, those of us that have believed in Jesus have abandoned that system and replaced it with another. And that is that we have fixated on Jesus and we have put our trust in him and him alone. And we have found a perfect, unmatched righteousness in him, in his person and in his work. So these are the two systems, uh, as it were, and I hate to call it systems because we know it's a relationship and and so much more. But let's go with that for our purposes uh, this morning. Now, as I said a minute ago, in the Ephesian uh, congregations, there were some teachers that were sniffing around and and beginning to teach the Ephesian believers uh, and they were teaching them in a way that was drawing the believers away from the true gospel of grace. 
In fact, we've already learned that what they were teaching was different doctrines, different doctrine than gospel doctrine, as we have seen. And it involved, we know from verse four of chapter one, the use of myths and Old Testament genealogies. So just that would tell us that somehow the Old Testament is involved. But by the use of the word myths, we know that these guys are not bound by the Old Testament law. It's their springboard to whatever other fascinating stuff they might want to talk about and yarns that they might want to um, to share with the Ephesian uh, believers. We know from verse seven that they look at what it says in verse seven. They are wanting to be teachers of the law. Uh, so they want this role. They want to be instructors. They want to have authority over people. And what they want to teach is the law. They want to be known as experts on the Old Testament law. And so right there, we know that these guys are all about the Old Testament law, although we know enough to know that they're not bound by that. Later in First Timothy, we're going to learn some more specifics about the content of their teaching. We're going to learn from chapter four, verse three, that they uh, were forbidding marriage and also advocating abstinence from certain foods. And no doubt the abstinence from certain foods was something that was derived from the regulations that were in the Old Testament law. But for them to be forbidding marriage, I mean, there's nothing in the Old Testament that comes remotely close to forbidding uh, marriage. So, again, we can see that they're making use of the law when it's convenient, but then springboarding off of that and adding other regulations beyond what was even prescribed in the Old Testament law. We also learned last week through our brother Carlos that these guys were confident when they taught. They made confident assertions. And so they were eloquent they were confident someone could easily get captivated by the confidence of these teachers of the law and say, man, they're, they're very eloquent. They're very well spoken and they are confident. They really seem to know their stuff. And so they must be right. And so even their confidence would beguile uh, the people of God. However, we saw last week that in spite of all of this, the fruit of their teaching ministry was nothing. It was fruitless discussion. It produced no genuinely godly Christ-centered fruit in the lives of those that they taught. It just basically tickled people's ears and educated them, but it didn't change their hearts. It didn't change their lives. It was fruitless discussion, Paul says at the end of verse 6. And also in verse seven, look at verse seven again, though they're wanting to be teachers of the law, he says they do not understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. They don't even understand the words that are coming out of their mouth. Number one, number two, the law that they want to be teachers of. They don't even get the law. They don't understand the law itself. These matters which are in the law about which they are so confidently speaking. It is one thing to be wrong. It is another thing to be confident in your wrongheadedness. It is one thing to be ignorant. It's another thing to be confidently ignorant. 
And that's what these guys are very confident. And yet, Paul says they don't understand. They don't have a clue what they're talking about. They don't understand the law. But now as we come into verse eight, look at how he transitions into verse eight. He says, but we know. And I want to have you guys underline or mark the the verb know here. This is the word that speaks of knowing something absolutely, knowing it with certainty. Um, This is not just something we sort of know, but no, he says we know with certainty. He says, but in contrast to these guys who don't get it and they don't understand the law, we, on the other hand, know some things to be true and we know them with certainty And then look at verse nine. Uh, The first verb in that verse is in the New American Standard realizing. And I'm not sure what your translations do, but that's actually the exact same Greek word that is found in verse eight that is translated. No, it's just a participial form of that verb. And if you don't understand that, don't worry about it. It's, It's basically the same Greek verb, just a different grammatical form of that Greek verb. So in verse eight, he's saying literally we know with certainty. Verse nine, he says knowing with certainty. And so you can basically sum up everything in verses eight through 11 as things that the Apostle Paul knew with certainty. All right. And what he's going to talk about is the law. And then he's going to talk about the gospel. But these are things that he and Timothy and all of us can and should know with absolute certainty. All we're going to have the time to do today is to look at what Paul knows with certainty about the law and what we, therefore, as believers, should also know uh, with certainty. And so we'll break this down this way. Three things that every Christian should know about the law. I know you guys didn't come to church this morning going, man, Lord, I just hope today I learned something about the Old Testament law. Um, I know maybe that this is not an exciting sort of topic, but I'll tell you something, guys. The stakes are high. You get it wrong here and you can be fatally wrong. Um, People lose their souls because they get this wrong and they fail to know the things that Paul identifies that he knows and wants all believers to know. And so the devil, I'll tell you, this does not want you to know these things with certainty. Um, And so for no other reason, seek to know them uh, for that. And so that you can protect yourself from the assault of legalism that does assail us all. So here's the three things that we're going to uh, that Paul would say we should know with certainty. Number one, we can observe in verse eight. Here's the first thing Paul would affirm with certainty, and that is that the Old Testament law is good if used lawfully. The Old Testament law is good if it's used lawfully. There were so many people in Paul's day who were abusing the law, causing problems for believers that it actually would have been easy for Paul to say, you know what, let's just cut the law off. It's bad. It's evil. Have nothing ever to do with it uh, once you become a child of God. He could have done that, but that would have been uh, just as wrong Paul would say, no, what these guys are doing with the law is wrong. um, But the law itself is good, but it is good only if it is used lawfully. Uh, In verse eight, he says, we know with certainty that the law is good. So Paul would say, I am a fan of 
the Old Testament law. I love the Old Testament law. In fact, in Romans chapter seven, he says, you know, I agree with the law and my inner man uh, affirming that the law is good. I joyfully concur with the law uh, in my inner man. So Paul would be a big advocate for the Old Testament law. He joyfully concurred with it, agreed with it and affirmed that it is good. But he says it is good if it is used lawfully. Sometimes uh, we purchase things in our home, certain products. And if you read the labels closely enough on the label, it will say something like any use of this product other than for the purpose stated on the labeling that sometimes they'll say is illegal uh, or they'll say can create a hazardous condition that could either be fatal or cause Injury or property damage. And what they're saying is this product comes to you to serve a very specific, narrow purpose. Use it only for the purpose that it has been created for. And Paul would say the same thing about the law. The law is good if it is used lawfully. Now, that raises a question in our minds, and that is, well, what is the lawful use of the law? And you're going to have to suspend that question for Uh, for a few moments because he doesn't answer it right away. But he begins to make progress towards answering that with a second thing that he would say we should know with certainty as believers about the law. And that is that the law is not made for those who are righteous. The law is not made for those who are righteous. He says in verse nine, knowing with certainty the fact that the law is not made for a righteous uh, person. Now, when he says that, he's not saying that, you know, the law was not made for people that have been so obedient that they're righteous. That's not his point. His point is the law was not made for people in Christ who have already been made righteous in him. All right. The law was not made for those uh, who have already found a perfect spotless righteousness through faith in the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. The system of law has no bearing upon such a person. Under the system of the Old Testament law, a person tries to obey to become righteous. He never does so perfectly. And the law basically utters a condemnation that cursed is everyone who does not obey everything that is written in the book of the law. And so that is the message of the law. Obey these regulations. If you don't obey them perfectly, you are damned. You are cursed of God And so that system of trying to obey the law in order to be righteous and to be blessed and to avoid being cursed, there's no need for a believer to live under that system because he has found a perfect righteousness, the righteousness of the one who did live under the law and perfectly obeyed it in every way, shape and form. And when we came to see our bankruptcy and we looked to Jesus and we saw that perfect righteousness, we said, that is the righteousness I want. And we happily threw away our own righteousness and we received the righteousness of Jesus. And Paul would say the law, the system of law is not for those who have found this righteousness in Jesus and who have been made perfectly righteous in him in terms of their standing before God. Now, these false teachers were coming to the Ephesian Christians saying, we want to teach you and we want to teach you the law and you need to you need to obey the regulations of the law, plus some other stuff that we'd like to add 
um, that you'll be fascinated by. And and uh, Paul says, no, no, the, the law was not made. The system was not created for those who have already found their perfect righteousness in Jesus. There is a third truth about the law that uh, Paul says we can know with certainty. And you might say, man, you're already on your last point. This is amazing. We're going to be done in no time. Uh, but we do have more ground to cover uh, even after this. But here's the third truth, and that is that the law is made for those living contrary to the gospel. The law is made for those living contrary to the gospel. Look at what he says in verse nine, realizing the fact that the law, uh, that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound, wholesome teaching. We then ask, what is sound teaching? Paul answers that in verse 11. You could translate verse 11 this way. Sound teaching, verse 11, which is according to literally the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted with. And so sound teaching is gospel teaching. It is teaching that is according to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. And so what he's saying is that the law was was designed to serve a purpose in the lives of those that are living outside of the gospel and contrary to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God that had been entrusted to the Apostle Paul. Now, let's take just a little bit of time. I don't want to belabor this, but Let's take a little bit of time to look at this list. It's not an exhaustive list, and so I don't want us to obsess on the, the details. Um, look, look at the items, though, he chooses to mention. He says it's for those who are lawless, um, and this doesn't mean those who don't know about the law. This just speaks of those who, knowing about the law, choose to live as if there were no law. They live in flagrant disregard of the law. They, yeah, this is what God's law says, but I want to do what I want to do. And that's how they live their life without any regard or respect for the law of God, because they have no regard or respect for the God from whom the law came. He then says rebellious, which has the idea of being insubordinate. They don't like being under people. They don't like being under authority. They don't want to be under God's authority. And so they come out from underneath his authority and his law and they make up their own rules. They are insubordinate. Uh, also, he says ungodly. This speaks of those that just choose to live their life in disbelief of God. Uh, they just choose not to believe him, his power, his glory and his goodness. Sinners speaks of those who have missed uh, the mark, not not so much they tried to hit the bullseye and they missed it. No, they just chose to hit another bullseye. Uh, they deliberately aim their arrows at another target. And um, there's an intentionality to the direction that they want to go with their life. And so their lives 
willfully fall short of giving to God the glory that God deserves from them as their creator and um, as the one who sustains their life in whom they live and move and have their being. And then also those who are unholy, those who uh, do not want the purity that characterizes God, those who do not want to set themselves apart unto God, but they set themselves apart unto themselves and unto other deities that are more consistent with their own preferences and and taste. You know, if you go to China, there's a temple there called the Temple of a Thousand Buddhas. And it's called that because you can go into this temple and there's just thousands of statues of the Buddha. And and what people do when they go to that temple is they're encouraged to find the statue of the Buddha that looks most like you because they're not all identical. Find the one that looks the most like you and let that be the one that you take home. And that is man-made religion. That is unholiness. Those who do not want to be set apart unto God, but unto themselves or unto deities that reflect themselves. Also profane. The law is for those who are profane. Literally, the Greek word means to walk or to tread. And it has the idea of treading upon that which is sacred, that which is holy. We get our English word profanity from uh, from uh, from this. And the, the idea of being profane is you take something that is holy and sacred and you tread upon it. You treat it as a common thing or even as a disgusting thing. That is the essence of of much of the profanity that is on people's uh, lips. They take the name of God, which is sacred. They take the name of Jesus Christ, which is holy and they put it on their lips as an expression of anger or disgust. They take words for sexual relations, something that is holy and sacred, created by God to be enjoyed within the context of a covenant marriage relationship. And they take words that have to do with that and they put that on their lips to express disgust or anger. That is profaneness. It is trampling upon that which in God's economy is holy and sacred. Paul says the law is made for such people. In fact, if someone is using this kind of profanity, you can say, did you know that there's a part of the Bible that was written just for you? Really? Yes. And then you can share the law with them. Also, it was made for those who kill fathers or mothers. Some of the language Paul uses in this list is pretty extreme. In the Old Testament, like in Exodus 21:15, if a if a child struck, like slapped or punched his father or mother, he was to be put to death. And so to kill one's father or mother is just an extremist form of of evil here, and the law is made for people who kill their Parents. Also, he goes on to say murderers, all those who take anyone's uh, life uh, for any reason. And then he says immoral men in the New American Standard, but it's basically immoral people. It's the masculine gender, but it, uh, it just speaks of immoral people. The fact that it's masculine just means that men are among the number of those that are immoral for whom the law was written. This is the term we get 
our English word pornography from. And uh, it just speaks of those that engage in sexual activity outside of the bounds of a covenant marriage relationship. So it speaks of premarital uh, sexual relations or even those that are married and they go outside of the marriage and have sexual relations with someone that they are not married to. Those are immoral people and the law was made for such people. And then he says homosexuals. This is the word male and the word bed. It speaks of two members of the same sex in the same bed, speaking of all kinds of of homosexual uh, behavior. And if I could um, if I can just linger on this a little bit, we got a proposition that's on the ballot that has everything to do with this subject. I, I was also reading. I got an email recently about a pastor in Sweden who just in the course of his his preaching, he preached through Romans chapter one and preached what that text says on the subject of homosexuality. And he ended up being arrested three times by the Swedish authorities and ended up being in prison for the, the length of a month's time. I've heard of similar types of incidences in Canada And from the talk that I hear, it wouldn't be surprising that within our lifetime, uh, that type of thing is going to be here in the United States. Um, But nonetheless, we don't get our cues from the world, right? Uh, We get our cues and our morality from God and from his word. Um, You know, about a month ago, there was a famous singer who was a professing born-again believer who came out and announced that he was a homosexual. And to their credit, the press asked him, wait a minute, you're a Christian. How do you square that with your faith? And he said this in reply. He says, I still consider myself a born-again Christian, and I'm absolutely comfortable with that and comfortable with my salvation. God uh, would not want such a one to be comfortable in any way with their salvation. I know this. This isn't me talking because in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, drunkards, revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Those who practice such things without repentance will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, to anyone who might have struggles in this way, that when you are tempted, these are the kinds of temptations that you have. Um, My message to you is there is grace at the foot of the cross like there is for the rest of us. And there is power uh, in Jesus. There is power in the cross. And the gospel that we believe in is incredibly, it is insanely good news uh, for you. And we who have a lot of uh, sinful, evil tendencies in us, we are adulterers and murderers and thieves at heart. We have found hope in the cross and you with your sinful tendencies can join us in finding hope in Jesus Christ as well. 
That is why Paul says to this this group of people, verse 11, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the spirit of our God. I mean, God looks at such people in this list and says, those are exactly the kind of people that I want to sanctify and justify and wash clean and make my children and utterly transform. But nonetheless, there are murderers, immoral men, homosexuals that are on this list, and then kidnappers. This was often used in the context of those who trafficked in slaves, kidnapping them in order to sell them. Um, And then lastly, he says liars. That's anyone who speaks an untruth for any reason. And then perjurers. uh, These are deeper uh, liars than just liars. I mean, all sin is equal to God, but someone who lies might be someone who in the spur of the moment without premeditated thought happens to tell a lie. A perjurer is someone who thinks about the lie he's going to tell. He swears an oath and says, may God Judge me uh, forever if I lie when I say to you and then they speak a lie. So this is the state of a person's soul to engage in such swearing followed by more deception is grave indeed. And Paul says the law was made for uh, these people. And then look at what he says He says at the end of verse 10, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching or gospel uh, teaching. Now, the truth is, I don't know about you, but I find myself in this list. The law was made for me outside of Christ. In fact, God used the law to bring me to Christ. And many of us could give the same testimony. This is what we all are apart from Jesus Christ. Now. The question is, if the law is good, if it's used lawfully and it's not for those, the system of law is not for those that have found their righteousness in Jesus, but it's for those that are outside of Christ living contrary to the gospel that raises the question. And that is, well, what exactly uh, does the law do? What purpose does the law serve in the lives of such People And to get the answer to that question, you have to go elsewhere. And so let's take a little bit of time just to answer this briefly. The law does three things in the lives of such uh, people. And that is that the law shows them their sin. The law shows them their sin. In Romans 7, Paul says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. Um, So Paul is saying that the law helped me to see uh, not only the fact of my sin, but he goes on to say in the context there of Romans seven, that it it showed me the magnitude of the sin uh, that it prohibits in uh, its provisions. So the law shows people the fact of their sin, the magnitude of their sin. It shows people their cursed state in their sin. The law is not just a set of rules that we can show people that they have violated. No, the law then actually renders a verdict in Deuteronomy twenty-seven twenty-six. Paul actually in Galatians quotes from this verse and saying, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things. And just in your mind, mark that word all 
Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. You know what? That's everybody. That's everybody because nobody has obeyed God's law perfectly. So the law shows us our sin. It then reveals to us our cursed state as we hear the verdict of the law upon us. But then the law does one uh, final thing, and that is that it points us to Jesus. It points those who are outside of Christ to Jesus Christ. So the law shows us our sin. It can't solve that sin problem. It speaks to us of our condemned state. And when we say to the law, as it were, what shall I do? I cannot escape from out of this condemnation. The law says, I was hoping you'd say that. And then it points to Jesus and says, let me take you there. It points and actually leads people to Jesus. Galatians 3, Paul says the law has become our tutor, our schoolmaster to lead us uh, to Christ so that we may be justified or made righteous by faith. We couldn't be made righteous by the law, but now we can be made righteous by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. We still have a relationship with the law. The law is still our friend. I would encourage you to make use of the law like the Ten Commandments in order to review God's glory and his righteous standard so that you can then become mindful of how you have fallen short of that standard so that you can then go the next step and begin to worship God for the magnitude of the grace of forgiveness that he has lavished upon you. Every time I read through the Ten Commandments, um, I always come out at the other end of contemplating those commandments, more in love with Jesus, more amazed at the grace of God, because I go through the Ten Commandments and I am O for ten. I have broken countless times the letter and the spirit of every single one of God's Ten Commandments, and I've been forgiven for all of it. So the law is still our friend, but we're not under that system of law wherein we have to obey the Ten Commandments, for example, in order to be righteous. Well, we're running out of time here. Let me give you some quick applications. Application number one, guys, use the law in your evangelism of the lost. The law is a tool that is given to us as believers to uh, when, we, when we do share uh, with the lost and we evangelize the lost, uh, the law has the power to show people their sin and their condemned state and to point them to Jesus. And so if we're concerned for the souls of men, we would actually want to become proficient in making use of the law. And Paul does this in the book of Romans as he preaches the gospel uh, to the Roman Christians. He takes time uh, to go extensively through the law. A uh, couple qualifications, however, if you want to start with the law when you evangelize people, remember that the law begins with God. And it is the sight of God that produces the conviction of sin. No one is ever going to be convicted by finding out that there's a rule here that says don't steal and I've stolen. Um, they'll admit, yeah, I've stolen. But they're never going to be uh, seized with conviction over the magnitude of their sin until they see the greatness and the glory of the lawgiver who spoke those words, thou shalt not steal. The book of the law, actually, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, begin with the words, in the beginning, 
God. And even the Ten Commandments themselves begin with the words, I am the Lord your God. So don't just throw rules at people. You you present to them the God of glory from whom those laws have come so that they can then understand the magnitude of their crimes against this God. They've done more than broken rules. They have committed crimes against this glorious one who has given those rules. And so as you preach law, First and foremost, you need to preach the glory of God. Um, And then lastly, while the law is extremely helpful for the purposes that we have seen, don't exclusively, all right, don't exclusively depend upon the law to be what brings about the conviction of sin. Don't be a cookie cutter evangelist to where everyone you talk to, you, you say exactly the same thing. Uh, to everyone, you need to follow the leading of the spirit. Uh, let him guide you as you're learning about this person and where they're at. And the law is very helpful in helping people to see their sin and the magnitude of their sin. But don't depend exclusively upon the law in every case. You think about Isaiah chapter six. Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. According to John's gospel, that was the glory of Jesus that he saw. There were no laws that were stated or uttered. He just saw the glory and the holiness of the God of heaven. And he fell on his face and said, I'm a ruined man. I am a sinful. I am an unclean man. And everyone around me is unclean. What was it that generated that kind of response in him? It was the sight of God. The glory of God and the holiness of God. Um, So again, preaching the glory of God is something that helps people to see the magnitude of their sin. Also, I believe it's in Luke chapter five. Peter and the other guys had been fishing all night on the Sea of Galilee. They caught nothing. And then Jesus taught for a little while. And then he told them, push out a little bit and then cast your net into the sea and you'll catch some fish. And Peter's like. This is crazy. We fished all night. We caught nothing. And imagine a guy who got his livelihood from this, how frustrating this would be. He's out there to make a living. um, And he caught nothing. So can sell nothing. But Jesus uses his boat and then says, just push out, throw the net in. And they do so. And the net is so full of fish. They have to call guys from the other boats nearby to come help them. And the net begins to break. And it then says, Peter fell on his face before Jesus and said, go away from me. Because I am a sinful man. Jesus didn't throw any of the Ten Commandments at him. He just loved Peter. And the love and the power he displayed caused Peter to be seized with conviction over his sin. So I think the common thread here, guys, is we make use of the law precisely because the law reveals the glory of God in the face of Jesus. But ultimately, it is through the Holy Spirit that conviction of sin is rendered in the heart of a person. And it is only as a person sees God's glory, God's greatness, yea, even God's love, that they begin to comprehend the depth of their sin. 
Sometimes you're witnessing to someone and you give them the law and God uses that to seize them with conviction over their sin. And then other times uh, you're speaking to someone simply of the love of God and they're broken over the magnitude of their sin. David Brainerd, who lived back in the 1700s, and I'll close with this, um, in his journal he records uh, some times that he had with the uh, native Uh, Americans or the Indians that he preached the gospel to listen to this one incident from August 9th of 1745. He says there were many tears among them while I was discoursing publicly. In other words, preaching to them. Some were much affected with a few words spoken to them in a powerful manner, which caused the persons to cry out in anguish of soul. Man, that's an awesome response. What was he saying that would generate that response? He says this, although I spoke not a word of terror, but on the contrary, I set before them the fullness of the all sufficiency of Christ's merits and his willingness to save all that come to him and thereupon pressed them to come without delay. It was showing forth the glory and the beauty and the love and the merits of Jesus Christ that caused them to be seized with conviction over their sin that was born out of a desire for this one that they were seeing presented to them in the gospel. And so all in all, my point is, let us make great use of the law, but let us be open as we speak to people to the fact that God uses various things to, depending on where a person may be at, to generate within them through the power of the Holy Spirit conviction over their sin. But the law is our friend, is not our enemy, is our friend to aid us in our own life, to deepen our appreciation of God's grace and his glory, and also as a tool for us to use in pointing people to Jesus. Well, let me ask you to bow your heads. Next week, we're going to be looking at the gospel that the, the law points to. We'll wrap this up for today. We're going to be taking up an offering here in just a moment. So you're welcome to pull out the comment card from your bulletin and fill out the comment card. And let us know of your attendance. If there's any way that we can pray for you, please let us know that our staff will pray over those things in the Tuesday staff meeting. If there's any way we can minister to you, let us know. Let us just pray and ask. God, to bless our offering and to accept our offering of ourselves and our gifts to him. Lord, we thank you for your love that you have shown to us. You have loved us enough to give us your law that we might see our sin problem, to see the diagnoses of our malady and that the law as your servant would then point us to Jesus, who is the full meter of our soul's need. And we thank you even more, Lord, for the Christ, for the gospel that the law points us to. We thank you for the salvation that we have in Jesus, for the price that you paid that we might be the recipients of this grand salvation and enjoy the benefits of it day by day. 
So, Lord, it is an easy thing to respond to these manifestations of your goodness and generosity by just giving back to you, knowing that the funds that we give will only serve to help the further spread of this message that has made such a difference in our lives. And so we give these funds to you and we give our hearts and our full selves to you in Jesus name. And all God's people said.